Root AI with RoboHub, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hello and welcome to the RoboHub podcast. Today we'll be hearing from Josh Lessing, co-founder and CEO of Root AI, about the company's vision for the future of farming and the products they're developing to help us get there. Specifically, Root AI seeks to build artificial intelligence and robotic systems to make farming more efficient and sustainable. Their robotic picker, which uses a delicate gripper, computer vision system and artificial intelligence, can harvest crops autonomously and at the same time collect valuable data. Our interview about A caught up with Lessing to discuss Root AI, the business decisions the startup made to create a product with good market fit, as well as the hoops that robotic startups need to jump through more generally to build a successful company. Hello, welcome to the RoboHub podcast. Could you introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Josh Lessing and I am the CEO and co-founder of Root AI. Nice to meet you, Josh. Could you tell us a little bit more about Root AI and what you're doing over there? Sure. So at Root AI, what we're building is artificial intelligence and robotic systems that allow you to derive more value from your farm. You know, systems that can drive around the farm, pick your crops, inspect your crops, elevate data-driven insights to growers, all with the goal of adding more productivity and predictability to farming operations. Can you describe the system a little bit? The way in which we architected the system really in many different ways is designed to mimic the human body plan. And the reason this is, is that you can make the simplifying assumption that through crop genetics, you know, plant breeding and environmental structuring, you know, crops are meant to be picked by people, at least many of the ones that you buy in a grocery store, cucumbers, tomatoes, strawberries, peppers. So with that in mind, if you want a a single robot architecture, that can work on all of these different crops, do meaningful work, what you need is a system that, that's kind of like a person. So we have a robot arm that is the same sort of joint arrangement that you would associate with the human left arm. We use a finger dexterity approach, so we're gripping with little fingers and picking and twisting. We have an optics package mounted just above the arm that can collect data on the environment and then actually process that on bot and develop different kinds of picking strategies where a huge part of what we do is the ability to kind of bob and weave the hand in and out of the environment on complex paths, just like people do. And then from there, you know, these robots, well, at least at first, we're putting them into these massive industrial greenhouse farms, like 100, 200 acres of greenhouse building where they drive up and down a crop row, they analyze uh, produce, they find picking opportunities, they, they pick those crops and place them on a on-robot storage system. And finally, you know, as they do that, as they bring in the harvest, they also collect data on those crops so that we can elevate insights to farmers. And this is all around building a very flexible architecture. That's why, you know, a big part of our vision at the company is to not build, you know, a bespoke machine that works on one crop in one particular varietal in one particular environmental structure so that a farmer becomes, you know, shackled to a single piece of hardware technology. Our goal is flexibility. You know, farmers didn't lose access to a piece of capital equipment. What they lost and, and what, what the market needs 
is an agile workforce. You know, workers work on one crop today, another crop tomorrow. Farmers grow different varieties season over season to meet retail demands. So by building a robotic system that mimics people, you have the capacity with a single software and hardware architecture to deliver a system that does many jobs at the farm and really satisfies what growers need as a core piece of their operations. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like your technology is interfacing with a few off-the-shelf robotics um, components that are already available, such as the ARM. Um, from this package, which are the components that are specifically made by Root AI and which are the components that are sort of added on um, or used off the shelf? So that's a very good point. So wherever possible, we focus on things that are commercial off the shelf. If someone has a really brilliant Lego brick, you might as well use it and, and not invest the time there. Um, we do build uh, elements of our own hardware in places where we can add real value. So two major ones to highlight would be the robotic uh, gripper itself. So it's a proprietary mechanical mechanism that we've developed that allows us to grab fruits without damage in a way that's easily cleanable because, you know, this is food. There are sanitary needs uh, for the grower, for the end customer. So that that's one place where we we make our own hardware. Also, the integration of our optics package, uh, which also includes onboard, you know, so system on module compute for our AI models. That system is something that we integrate ourselves with a variety of commercial off-the-shelf sensing off offerings, but in a package and an architecture that makes sense for our application. Mm -hmm. And can we backtrack a little bit? Um, tell us a little bit about your company. I know you guys are fairly new. You're a startup. How big are you? When were you founded? So the company kicked off in January 2018. It was founded uh, by myself and my business partner, Ryan Nall. We had met years ago um, building a different company that uh, amongst its different focuses was uh, application of robotic dexterity for the food industry. So how do you use robots in an intelligent way in food processing and packaging plants? It was one of many verticals that that company went after, but um, it was a place where Ryan and I really developed a deep passion for in that, you know, the opportunities in food are, are big, but so, so is the, you know, the social effect of actually providing automation to those industries, creating a durable food supply chain where, you know, ultimately people have a series of, of fundamental needs, right? They, they need shelter, they need food, they need medicine. And in a world where we could provide tons of resilience to the ways in which the world get food, gets food, um, that was really exciting for us. It's what inspired us to build full stack uh, robotic solutions for the food industry and go after some of the biggest pain points that we are seeing in the market. So our, our very first product is a robotic harvester where these days uh, being able to find folks who want to go out into a farm and pick fruits and vegetables, which is extraordinarily difficult job. It's very challenging, but you know, we simply can't opt out of, of eating, right? So the job, the work still needs to get done and these products are perishable. So the closer we can make it to the cities in which the food is consumed, the, you know, the better the nutritional value for, for everybody. 
and the less waste uh, that occurs in the food supply, where the food supply is a, a large polluter. And if we can provide more resilience there, less waste, we can make a real social impact on you know, the health of our environment. So that, that's what inspired us to, to start building the company. Uh, over the last two and a half years, we've built out a wonderful team. So there's 12 of us now, and we're actually growing even more and going to be hiring a lot more roles and getting uh, the very first version of, of the product, which we call Virgo. This is our robotic harvesting platform and you know, data aggregation system on the farm. We're going to be having those go out to customer sites to start doing, you know, start showing up for work, starting to do paid harvesting. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us how the this robot robotic system would compare to manual workers and what the status quo is for the industry right now? So the status quo for the industry right now is to hire workers that, that come and pick your crops. Often it is extremely challenging to find uh, domestic workers who want to, to do these jobs. So you have to go through what is a, a very complicated visa process and recruit people abroad. So having labor sourcing agencies find people from all over the world that want to fly uh, to your country, be away from their families, work on these crops, uh, get the harvesting work done. And it's over time become increasingly more challenging for organizations to manage that process effectively. So th that's the status quo is being able to bring in foreign workers to, to work on the farm and, and bring in the harvest. Our systems in, in many ways are very similar in that they leverage the same sort of operational workflows as, as folks do when, when they go out and harvest in the farm. Our systems are designed so that there's no new infrastructure in your farm, that you don't need to install anything so that our robots are walking down the rows, picking crops the same way you used to have your crops picked. Our robots offload their food into the packaging systems of the facility using the same sort of, you know, material handling trays. And, you know, as much as we can, having this be a one-to-one -one comparison between the way in which you used to run your operation and the way you can now run your operation using the latest in AI and robotics technology. Mm -hmm. And is this product already in the market serving uh, some customers? Yeah, so we are just kicking off commercial operations now. We do have a small number of systems already permanently out in the field. And we recently raised uh, financing the major thing that that's paying for is, you know, being able to have a much bigger commercial field presence. Mm -hmm. And have you already received some interesting feedback from customers who've implemented um, these systems at their farms? Uh, most certainly. So there's a lot of different ways in which we're actually adding value to these organizations that extend beyond continuous labor supply. So being able to harvest fruits at night actually can guarantee higher quality. It's something that a robot can do that is harder to have human crews do because uh, operating in any facility at night without much in the way of lights is a bit tricky. You know, other things being the ability to program into a robot all of the quality metrics that you want that determine whether or not a fruit is eligible for harvest, which is very, very difficult to often be able to do consistently with a human labor force just because incentives aren't in the same place. 
and you know robots simply do you know what you tell them to do I, I think in the long term there's also a lot of opportunities to you know have robotic systems deliver a higher level of uh, sanitary operation you know plants are living things themselves so being able to have a robotic system where you always know what parts of the facility it traveled to and when it was last cleaned and what it was cleaned with and what are the pest and disease issues that you're managing on the farm. You know, a robotic workforce better enables control of that so that you're using less herbicide, less per, uh, pesticide, which is better for all of us. It makes for cleaner food. You know, it really goes on and on for there. And I think it's not an uncommon story in robotics that uh, many folks think about the robotic system in terms of the base case, which is the labor automation. But once they start working with tools that provide a high degree of consistency and predictability and a layer of data that comes off of those systems, you find a lot of operational opportunities that you never thought were there before until you start interacting with the technology. Mm-hmm. And you bring up an interesting point about hygiene and cleanliness. And that makes me wonder, why did you decide to first um, go for the market that is picking vegetables and fruits in the field, as opposed to, say, in processing, uh, food processing environments that have these high hygiene requirements? So uh, actually, in my career, I, I've worked in both. And, and over time, I've actually worked extensively with folks that are regulators on how to build hygienic robotics. And there's certainly a substantial unmet need in, you know, meat processing and packaging, any sort of ready to eat uh, food to, you know, as well to manage, you know, exposure to salmonella, listeria, and so forth. And it's an interesting space. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Though, when you talk to to food producers, that's not the biggest unmet need. So I think I like to describe this as sort of a, a hierarchy of, of desirability in jobs and that being out on a farm in uh, just in the sun, in the heat, in those environments is one of the most grueling physical jobs out there. If you can then go into the pack house where at least there is a, a roof over your head with some level of air conditioning that job is just physically less taxing. And then if you can go into a warehouse job where you don't have, um, uh, for lack of a better term, all of the schmutz associated with a food packaging environment. So if you're in a, a meat packing plant, there is just uh, you know wet chicken parts or wet meat going everywhere. There is a layer of caustic solution coating the floor um, you know, you're wearing a whole variety of different kinds of personal protective equipment straight through the shift. That's um, a harder thing to cope with than, let's say, transferring to a warehouse. So it's not an uncommon phenomenon that if you put a food processing plant uh, or packaging plant near a farm, you're going to lose your farming workforce to those packaging and processing plants. And if you put a warehouse uh, for like an e-commerce uh, site, near the food packaging or processing plant, you're going to lose those workers to, to the warehouse. So we really wanted to go after um, these agricultural harvesting jobs just because they're simply the hardest jobs to fill. And when you think about it, they're actually, it's a much, much larger 
global opportunity. There's, there's over $100 billion spent a year in picking just a small number of crops. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So uh, we mentioned a lot about the U.S. and the market here, where we have a deficit of um, people who are able to work on the farms. How does that translate to the global uh, environment? And how does that translate for root AI? It's actually really surprising. Um, but when you spend time with growers in Mexico, or you spend time with growers in North Africa, these are both regions that uh, have really nice weather and can service in the case of North Africa, fresh to Europe, or in the case of Mexico, fresh to the US and Canada. Those growers are struggling to find uh, people as well. So if I'm in Mexico and I stand up a production facility for car parts or a production facility to manufacture shoes or any of a number of other jobs, those end up being, those end up pulling in workers into those facilities over working and farming, especially since many farming jobs are, are seasonal. And in order to provide for our families, we need predictable year-round employment. So this, this competition for labor exists everywhere. And for many commodities, there really is a limit to how far around the world you can ship that product just due to the perishability. So being able to pull that production close to the cities that, that you know, we, we consume the product and using a layer of automation to get the work done, that's starting to become you know, the standard in the industry for, for how to make many different kinds of food and is really desirable for retailers that, that you know provide our grocery stores um, because it provides them a s simplified logistics network as the backbone for their fresh offerings. On top of a greater efficiency for picking the vegetables, does it also create a greater efficiency for cultivating more crops per square meter of farmland? So that's something that we're we're actually looking into right now, which is you know, how do you increase yield per square meter? And, you know, a lot of that simply begins with just data collection in that right now, uh, growers rely on employees to scout the farm. Those scouts go out and they collect a variety of different kinds of measurements, many of which are, are just visual counts of things. And that data is sparse data and that they're not collecting that data on 100% of their farm or even 50% or even 25% of their farm. Uh, the manner in which that data is collected is inconsistent in that two different people can have different judgments of things. They might collect the data at different times of the day, which depending upon the question um, changes what is the outcome in, in the data set. So um, for us, you know, we're, we're beginning with aggregating a lot of data on the farm, uh, elevating that, that data to customers, and then working on a layer of predictive insights for them as well. And, you know, what's great about that is, you know, you have these master growers that, that manage the production of the entire farm. Uh, they're amazing at what they do. They have insights about their plants that are just completely uncanny, but there's not, you know, two, three hundred of them around the farm. So one of the things that they're limited by is just the amount of data on which they, they create their decisions. So as you talk about this data, um, I can see that this is very related to the artificial intelligence portion of your product offering. 
Um, are the different parts of your product, say the optic system, the physical robot, um, the gripper, the artificial intelligence, modular enough that a customer could just take that component and fit it into um, their existing infrastructure or just use the parts that they are specifically interested in? So we designed the system to be highly modular, you know, so we can replace one gripper for another to change what crop you're picking. So it's all the same mechanism, but slightly different arrangements of the gripper that are optimized for, you know, a cucumber versus a tomato versus a strawberry. Uh, similarly, our optics package, uh, which does incorporate the onboard compute for our AI models, uh, that can be, that's its own modular standalone unit. But the product itself is a fully integrated system and in that what I want to deliver to a customer isn't a component, it's a solution. And solutions come from integrating many different components so that um, the point of interaction with the customer is demonstrating how you're getting the work done for a particular price as opposed to providing an enabling piece of technology that lies within, um, you know, an integrated packaging line or any of a number of robotic solutions. Uh, the reason why we, so, you know, so, so the system is, is unified and it's sold to the customer as a package. The reason why we make our systems highly modular is that it's important to be able to have a lot of reuse when you, you know, use the robotic system to go after different opportunities in the farm, you know, make, a singular upfront investment in the platform technology of your business, and then be able to very trivially go after new opportunities. And a big part of being able to build that into, into the company, to have the business have the capability of going after one opportunity after the next quickly with minimal new you know, research cost, is making sure from the very beginning in your company that everything you build is designed to be uh, little modular, I like to always say Legos, little Lego bricks that you can assemble into new things. And when you talk about modularity, um, are you discussing expanding, say, into different types of fruits and vegetables or crops to pick? Or um, is this modularity going to very different job functions altogether? So at first, the focus is being able to work on, you know, what crops you pick. So, you know, a lot of, of folks in agricultural robotics have heavily focused on one particular kind of crop and potentially even one specific variety of, of that commodity. And that doesn't really avail, you know, the, the business of a large market opportunity from one. So that's the internal perspective. The external perspective, the customer perspective, is that it doesn't provide the customer with much flexibility. So, you know, ultimately the customer needs to deliver what, you know, the, the Walmarts and the Costcos and the Krogers and the Aldis of the world want. You know, they tell them what they want to have appear on their grocery store shelves. So a grower needs to have the flexibility one season after the next to change things up and go after a more desirable product for a key customer. So making our systems so that they're you know, agile enough that they can move into different varieties or different crops, you know, gives a, a grower the, you know, the sort of organizational flexibility they need to be the best vendor for their customers. As you deal with growers who have a large range of crops that they need to 
work with and a large range of product requirements um, that they need for a robotic system. How do you deal with conflicts in those product requirements and how do you prioritize the different features that you need to fit into the robotic system since you are a startup and you do have limited resources? Certainly. So I guess the way I think about it is you have your MVP and anything that is a requirement in your MVP is just that it's a requirement. You, in some sense, can't have a conflict there and that if you worked closely with your customer and spent a lot of time in their operations, um, you know, that that's that's the task in front of you. And you have to ask yourself some honest questions as to whether or not you can deliver it. I think where things can often go awry is the value added features in that um, you could layer on top of your MVP a lot of functionality that delivers new kinds of value to the customer, drives new kinds of customer experience experiences. And, you know, if you don't keep careful track as to what it's going to take to develop that feature and does that feature really resonate with the customer, you can spend a lot of resources and time making things that aren't particularly necessary. And so for us, really a process of what is the least amount of time and money required to ask the next important question. So uh, this is something I've done a, a couple of different points in my career, uh, which is at the very, very beginning of a development program, don't build anything at all, right? Um, go to a customer and, and just in a very open-ended way, ask them questions about the challenges uh, that they're facing in their operation. Really try to do almost none of the talking uh, just because any feedback or responses you provide can sometimes taint uh, the quality of the voice of customer data you're collecting and do that with many customers and then do that as a small iteration looped together with then just simple like CAD drawings of a shell of what you envision uh, the product could be and just put that image in front of a customer of what the robot is going to look like and maybe some arrows to some of its components and features and because a lot of a lot of customers um, you know they need to have something fleshed out in front of them before they can kind of mentally play with what it could be and I've done this in the past and you know doing that at the top of a development program gives very hilarious outcomes and that um, more often than not the the customer I'm talking to pulls out the red pen and crosses out all sorts of components I thought would help them and they'll say that, you know, I don't need this. I don't need this. That's too much for this. Why did you build this? You know, why did you build this compressor into the system? And you're, and you're saying, well, you need compressed air. It's like, well, I already have my own compressor. You can plug into the house line. And then you go talk to several customers and they all say, oh, yeah, we all have house air. Why are you building a compressor in? So, I mean, that's a specific example, but it becomes a really good way of um, spending no money and no time to get to feedback. And so doing a couple of cycles of that, of open-ended questions, and then, you know, just basic illustrations of what it could be is very important. Um, going into their operations with a highly modular, uh, hacky prototype version of what you envision is the machine that, after you've done this, a voice of customer collection, going into their operations with a happy, hacky prototype that's modular and mocking up the operation and trying to just run 
practically a hackathon with your with your best customer relationship, the the earliest of early adopters, and figuring out what works and and what doesn't, and then really um, closing the loop quickly between the customer requirements and what from an engineering and the world of just the physical realities of physics you can actually deliver and making sure that what the customer wants and what you think you can physically accomplish are always in closed loop and that you're arriving at the definition of a product that you can physically build. You know, that's kind of this iterative advanced development, not even product development process um, that can get you to your successful MVP. And then after that, going back to my earlier comment about uh, feature selection, all of these kind of value adds you layer on top of the MVP, um, kind of the way we approach that is is really, you know, once we know what the com- the customer's core, um, you know, core metrics are for success, um, running an analysis as to whether or not a particular product feature that is cool actually drives that, you know, um, could a certain aspect of mobile autonomy that allows you to drive throughout the facility and, you know, be able to do a variety of things that, that people do, but might be a expensive for the robot to do, um, you know, figuring out if you add that mobile mobile autonomy that drives up the cost of the robot, are you actually delivering more savings and value for the customer? And if the answer is no, it's a cool feature. Some customers are even asking for it, but it really doesn't push the needle for the customer on their annual savings by engaging with your technology. Then odds are it's, it's not that big of a priority early in the life of the company to unlock that feature relative to other features that could massively expand value, increase the profit, you know, the profitability of the organization that you're working with and, you know, pull in the payback period for making an investment in your technology, for example. Yeah. Do you have any real world examples of some of these features that you've maybe had to scrap because the customer just decided it, it was not really useful towards them and you gain enough critical mass from a, a group of customers to make that decision? Oh, yeah. So I, I was giving one, which was um, the ability to drive throughout the entire facility. So, you know, some customers are asking whether or not uh, the robot could navigate from the pack house and the storehouse and the causeway to the row. And there is a way of building that solution. In fact, it's reasonably simple to put it together. But looking at just how much time uh, the robot or a person for that matter actually spends out in the farm, out in the crop row, you know, basically we were, we would be adding a lot of cost and complexity to the system to cover the automation of a task that really, you know, a person or a robot would spend almost no time every day doing like you were helping you were helping the robot over the course of, let's say, a 18-hour workday save 10 minutes. And when you realize how little additional value, value here being, you know, if you save that 10 minutes, will you spend an extra 10 minutes picking crops? You know, how much additional value have you delivered to the customer by having it get 10 more minutes of work done per day relative to the added expense uh, required to enable that feature. And, and ultimately it was just, it was de minimis relative to other features that, that you could build for customers 
that massively expanded the productivity of the robot. And, and one of the things that we do within the company is we have these theory of operation models uh, that link of the robot that link directly to what are the key metrics for the customer and what drives customer value so that anytime you have an idea about a product feature, you can toggle that in, in a spreadsheet and actually see how, you know, because these systems are complex and the results of a change in a parameter can sometimes be non-obvious. You know, just, you know, if you hit that toggle by adding this feature, have you expanded customer value by, you know, 20% or have you expanded customer value by by 1% and, and really empowering everyone in the organization, uh, both on the sales and operations side and product management side, but, but also, uh, you know, on, on the engineering side. And that's the more important one because these are the people, you know, making major architectural decisions every day at every level of the system, you know, empowering all of these folks to be able to see what the robot means to the customer from the customer's perspective and really prioritizing what we work on based on that growth of customer value. Do you have any advice for how a robotic startup company could go about raising money, maybe interacting with venture capital um, in order to be able to fund these sort of expensive procedures? I would encourage entrepreneurs to think about it from the VC's perspective. Ultimately, VCs have a job to do, and you have to ask yourself whether or not Investing in your business is in line with what they need to deliver for the people that have invested in them. So, so yes, robotics companies can be expensive, and they often do require a fair bit of capital at the very beginning to get off the ground. But this could be justified based on, you know, what is the value of the opportunity that you're catching, capturing on the far side of all of that investment. And to think about that, I like to step back and, you know, hop to what is the VC's job? So the venture capitalist is deploying capital for their limited partners. They're going to be deploying capital into high risk ventures. So most startups do not succeed. And as a result, a very small number of startups in their portfolio need to do all of the heavy lifting to allow the VC to return money to their LPs. So, you know, if you're, uh, if you're a VC and you're deploying $100 million in capital and the obligation is to return over $300 million, $400 million, $500 million in 10 years' time, you know, that's the fund's life. And you know that a very small number of the startups that you invest in out of that $100 million fund are going to survive and create a material exit. You always have to ask yourself the question, is the entrepreneur sitting in front of me the one that's going to really be the rock star, that superstar that creates the over billion dollar exit that does most of the heavy lifting to not only cover the original $100 million invested, but to create that $300, $400, $500 million return that I give to my LPs that justifies how illiquid this 10-year investment was for them, you know, giving this differentiated return that is above what LPs could seek in, you know, the the broader markets and, and not venture capital. And so that places some really tough criteria on on any startup. Hardware uh, just being one kind of startup, really, we all have a big job to do. And so how do you do this job well? You have to ask yourself questions about, you know, for your robotic startup, 
does your startup really merit that much cash invested in that when you invest this upfront cash, is there a huge opportunity on the far side that justified the effort? And when you have invested that cash and you do make your platform technology, is it going to be easy to scale that platform technology so that this amazing value creative machine is able to, on that 10-year time horizon, grow into a tremendous business because, you know, once you make a working robot, the journey really has only just begun. You need to sell this thing internationally. You need to drive top-line revenue. You need to create a global organization in many cases, you know, and you need to do this in a compressed time window. So, you know, I think a, a good example of a robotics company where investors have seeked you know, sought a lot of investments would be uh, autonomous vehicles, right? Self-driving cars. And I think a part of this is the fact that once you make the upfront investment into creating a successful autonomous car, which is a blend of, of hardware and software, you know, what's the opportunity on the far side? Well, the world is filled with cars. Uh, these cars are operating in relatively similar environments in that their city streets or highways in a way that once you've created the first car, it's reasonably extensible with minimal new investment to put that technology, that core platform technology, into market after market after market with limited new investment to expand the opportunities for the business. So that has some reasonable dynamics, right? Big upfront investment, but on the far side of it, there's a huge opportunity. And once you get a working technology, you can scale, 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 because if the car is in the US or Canada or Europe or Australia or Japan, it's still looking at roads and people and dogs and trees, and it's still going to be able to drive around autonomously. So you can accomplish that if you can create the original technology quickly. So it's kind of the risk reward is in the right place. I think that, you know, as robotics entrepreneurs, we need to be keenly aware of this fact. You know, when we go out and start up a business, I would say that one of the things that's really tricky about a robotic startup is it's just the sheer amount of time it takes to get to product market fit. So if you're a software company, you can be running continuous experiments in front of customers to achieve higher and higher degrees of product market fit. But in robotics, you know, you have these longer timelines of development associated with physical machines, and you have to ask yourself, you know, am I doing an amazing job of understanding the voice of the customer so that even though I'm working on these longer timelines to deliver each successive version of my product, am I always very much delivering exactly the next thing that the customer wanted and getting to product market fit quickly, even though the cycles of learning and iteration are are longer, right? You know, something to keep in mind is that, you know, product market fit isn't the thing that works and does what the customer wants. It's the thing that works and does what the customer wants that they absolutely love to interact with. So yeah, the fact that it takes a while to get to product market fit for many robotics companies is is vexing, right? Because early in the life cycle of a business, you can spend a lot of money building things that are unneeded. And until you get to product market fit, you can't scale. And until you scale, it's not really interesting, right? You, you need to build a big business. And then, yeah, once you have product market fit, you need to, you know, 
be architecting your business from the beginning in every single way in its technology. You know, I gave the example of our company being highly modular in the way in which we assemble the technology product. You know, have you architected your business from the very beginning such that in order to capture, you know, adjacent opportunity after adjacent opportunity in your market, it takes just very little, um, you know, new engineering investment to get these new dollars. You know, so can you then scale very quickly? And then certainly for a robotics company, you know, because you're scaling something that's physical, it does create added complexity to scale, right? You can't, you know, simply just deploy your software in the cloud and all of a sudden you've reached an international customer base. So, you know, at the very beginnings of the business, you really need to ask yourself some questions about, you know, not just how do I make the very first DaVinci copy of the machine that I want, but how do I grow, you know, because that's just a prototype that could become a product, but it's not a business. You have to ask yourself, how do I massively scale this into a business quickly, cheaply? And these are things that that robotics entrepreneurs really need to be thinking about from the absolute beginning of their business. And they need to get incredibly creative about ways that they, you know, different methods that they can deploy to massively reduce the time and the cost to achieve each interesting, you know, answer to a question, you know, a hypothesis about what delivers value to a customer at the very beginning of the business when you're on the journey to product market fit. And then after that, you know, I mean, not even after that, at the very beginnings of the business, as you're building this device that gets a product market fit, you really need to think about how you're entering that market and how you're going to grow inside that market and what are the tactics you can deploy both in the structure of your contracts and the channel partnerships that you establish and the physical product itself. What are you doing to really grease the skids so that when you have a wonderful piece of platform technology, it can get into the hands of lots of customers very quickly and create this massive year-over-year growth that's expected of you, right? If, um, if a VC is investing across many different companies and only one um, is going to end up being a winner. The burden on you is to create massive year-over-year growth in the value of your company. And so I think that that's kind of the calculus. Once you start thinking about it from the VC's perspective, it's not that the VC's perspective is is greedy. It's simply what makes the numbers work. And then you need to sit down and as you architect the business, ask yourself, can I build my robotics company in a way that makes the numbers work? All right. Thank you very much for talking with us today, Josh. Thank you for having me. And that's all from us for today. But before you go, just a quick reminder that you can find more information about this and all our past episodes at robohub.org forward slash podcast. And if you think there's a topic or expert we should talk to, have a question about one of our episodes, or would like to get involved yourself, well, then just get in touch with us at abate.de.mey at robohub.org. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Root AI with Robohub, the podcast for news and views on robotics.